Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. And you're listening to I See Why Am I. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And listeners, that is the sweet, sweet sound of our one and only Rachel Hampton back on the pod. <laughs> we have missed you so much. And I'd love to hear in your own words, Rachel, what have you been up to? Any highlights you'd like to share with us? Well, I know you've been keeping the listeners updated on what I've been doing. I don't actually know what you've told them, but (laughs) suffice to say that I've had a productive and exciting time off. Now, Rachel, you sound rested and relaxed and for good reason, because you logged off from the apps during this sabbatical, right? Mm-hmm. For the last month of it. So December, I was on the apps because I'm going to be honest, I was at home for two weeks and God knows I cannot spend two weeks in the suburbs of Texas without access mm. to social media. But once right, I got right. back to New York, I was like, what if I quit social media for the first time since I was 12 years old? What would happen to my brain? And so I tried it. And I got to say, maybe I should get a new job because it was so nice. <laughs> I know. She got a social media lobotomy. Basically. And the thing is, I think this is great because, you know, with your skin clear, head empty, I think I'm going to catch you up on some of the things that have happened online while you were gone because, you know, I saw these and I immediately was just like, I have to know what Rachel <laughs> thinks. So are you ready? I'm a little nervous. Be nervous. <laughs> Be nervous. <laughs> Okay, hit me. On January 29th, Elmo of Sesame Street fame tweeted this very simple question. Elmo is just checking in. How is everybody doing? And I don't know if the words checking in has become like a Pavlovian response for people to treat their friends like their therapist, but people started trauma dumping on Elmo. Let me read some of the responses, all right? From at Contrarian Guild. Every morning, I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday, I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for my life. Next, from 7-Eleven Truther. Wife left me. Daughters don't respect me. My job is a joke. Any more questions, Elmo? Jesus, man. And I'm going to end on a banger. T-Pain, that's right, who lives in a mansion from Wisconsin. He said... I'm just looking for somebody to talk to and show me some love if you know what I mean. So, Rachel, what is your reaction to people trauma dumping on Elmo? I'm really stuck on what seems to be T-Pain propositioning Elmo. Oh! He wanted that Elmosi. Oh! 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 You think he wanted Elmo? I mean, so we're thinking T-Pain is like, I'd like to cuff it this season. Yes. That's what it sounds like. Someone okay. to hold. I No one oh. says that platonically anymore. Right, 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 right. And the thing is, like, this kept snowballing into Elmo and his dad going on the Today Show. Larry David strangled Elmo on the Today Show. And he literally said, somebody had to do it. Not true. And I guess the silver lining here is, like... Maybe it's good that adults feel like they can still be honest with Elmo. And let's just hope that they're just as honest to their therapist. Mm. All right. Here's the next one. On January 3rd, Christopher Nolan, who was nominated this year for directing Oppenheimer, said he was taking a Peloton class when the instructor had something to say about another movie he directed, Tenet. And I would like to play you a clip from that class. 
This song is from the soundtrack of a movie called Tenet. Anybody see this shit? Did anybody see this besides me? Because I need a manual. Someone's got to explain this. Yeah, I'm not kidding. What the fuck was going on in that movie? Do you understand? Seriously, you need to be a neuroscientist to understand. And that's two and a half hours of my life that I want back. (laughs) (laughs) So let me add some stuff here. Firstly... The song they're playing is from the Tenet soundtrack, Mm -hmm. and the instructor explained that this class was actually filmed in 2020 when Tenet came out. She said, you know, it was a dark time. She had just watched Tenet the night before, but she does love Oppenheimer, and she saw it twice. Now, Nolan has said that he still has love for Peloton, but he might skip classes for a while, which is really sad because now his Peloton bike is like a reminder that he not only skipped today, but that he also got roasted on it. And so, Rachel, do you think the Peloton instructor was out of pocket? Should Nolan jump back on the bike? Should classes maybe have a Christopher Nolan slander trigger warning for the interstellar mm, boys? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are all really good questions. This is also probably the funniest thing I've seen happen recently that <laughs> Christopher Nolan got roasted in the middle of his exercise routine. Yeah. A very vulnerable moment for most of us when we're working out. We're feeling our walls are down, we're sweaty. And then to hear someone say, did anyone see this shit? Is <laughs> so funny. I love it. I mean, listen, we all know Christopher Nolan does not make his movies easily comprehensible. He has told right. us that himself. So if a Peloton instructor does not understand Tenet, which let's be real here, most of us didn't, <laughs> then um, your movie is doing what you want it to do, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah. And. To be fair, like, I don't know who was more to blame here because Cody Rigsby, for example, he gets famous for doing this in his Peloton classes where he'll, like, play Britney, defend Britney, play a different song, and then go off about something else in culture. And, like, we all think it's funny, but when a woman does it to Christopher Nolan, it's a problem. Exactly. Okay. And here is the last one, Rachel. Oh, okay. On January 31st, mm-hmm. Demi Lovato was performing a few of her songs at a charity concert. And toward the end, she performed her 2013 song, Heart Attack. <gasps> One small thing. This concert was a benefit for heart disease. <gasps> yep. It was for the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women Red Dress Collection Concert. First off, too long of a name. Now, The Hollywood Reporter has said that Demi chose to perform the song because she herself suffered a heart attack following her overdose in 2018. And this was her, like, reclaiming the song. And she told the audience that in a little intro. They also reported that the AHA signed off on it. And so, I don't know. What's your take on this, Rachel? I mean, you heard me gasp. Yeah, yeah. You heard the sharp intake of breath. Um, But now that I have heard that this has been approved, I'm down for it. I mean, I love a moment of reclaiming, and Demi deserves the world, so she's been through a lot. I like it. I'm here for it. (laughs) Picasso. Yeah. All right. Well, Rachel, those are three moments that I loved from the internet in January, and I pretty much aligned with you on all of these, which proves that sometimes hot takes aren't that hot after all. But on today's show, you are doing something much more valiant than fighting Elmo on live TV. You had a great conversation about illness influencers. I did. 
I spoke with A.W. Olheiser, who is a senior technology reporter and editor at Vox, about an incredible piece that they wrote about the complicated lives and deaths of TikTok's illness influencers. Um, I will be back with A.W. after a short break. Hey there. If you love our podcast, then maybe you should consider subscribing to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, there are no ads on any Slate podcasts. And Slate Plus helps keep this podcast going because this show would not be possible without your support. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments and episodes for shows like Slate Money, Slow Burn, Amicus. You'll also never hit a paywall on the Slate website, meaning you get access to every article and every advice column. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back. Joining me today is senior technology reporter and editor at Vox, A.W. Olheiser. Hi, W. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So this is your first time here on ICYMI. So we ask all of our first time guests uh, the most important question, which is what was your first internet memory? So I am nearly 40. So there's a lot of like, internet history to remember back. I think if I'm trying to think back, it's probably trying to set up like a good instant messenger bio Mm, um, mm -hmm. in middle school. Like that's probably like the first like really concrete like investment in being online that I had. I love that. I'm picturing an AIM away message or some precursor to AIM. (laughs) So today we are talking about a recent article you wrote for Vox called The Complicated Lives and Deaths of TikTok's Illness Influencers. And before we kind of dive in, I wanted to ask, how did this story come to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So this story I kind of see as something that I started seeing after I wrote about a related topic. So a couple years ago, I wrote a piece for MIT Technology Review about dementia content. And that was a piece that looked not only at the popularity of content about dementia and particularly content made by care partners about caring for their relatives, um, sometimes their spouses, sometimes their parents, um, but also about the issues of consent that come with that sort of content. Um, And so that was a piece where I talked to caregivers. I also talked to activists who have cognitive decline themselves about how they think about these issues of consent and like, what does it mean to make ethical content um, in a space like dementia? And I think that while there are different sets of issues that making content about your own serious illness have, um, for instance, you know, a lot of the people I was talking to for this Fox piece are making the content themselves. It, it is not content that is me- being made about them, right? Um, like there are a lot of key distinctions that ways, but I think that these similar questions about whose stories get seen, who get heard, and like how you build community, um, both good and bad, 
in these spaces when you're talking about something like a, a disability or a serious illness, I think that the, those two stories kind of naturally flowed from one to the other. Definitely. And that kind of very naturally segues into my next question, which is that disability and illness content have existed online basically since online existed. And I was wondering how you have found TikTok as a platform changing this kind of content, or if you feel like TikTok as a platform has changed this kind of content at all. I don't know how much it's changed the content beyond the packaging, I would I say cautiously. I think that a lot of times when there's a new way to reach people like TikTok or a new kind of method of being online, it changes the flow. It maybe supercharges how fast people see things. It maybe changes whose faces you're seeing or the fact that you're seeing faces, right? Like there's a big difference between, say, Facebook groups for people who are all kind of living with the same illness and being online with your face on camera, kind of interacting with audio memes and interacting with other creators. Um, I do think, and I got into this a little bit in the piece, I do think like kind of the mutuals culture of TikTok is really important for people who are making this content themselves, right? So not just finding an audience, but finding mutuals, finding other people who maybe also have the same illness or a similar illness. And those conversations then end up becoming a group chat or offline. And so like, I think some of like what has changed is maybe not necessarily the most visible stuff you're seeing. Um, I do also think though that TikTok has become a place, generally speaking, that is really open to misinformation about health um, in a way that, again, it's not different than it has been before. It's just incentivizing different things. There's new algorithms that are recommending new things to people. There's new ways of interacting that are sort of feeding into these same things that have been on the internet forever. I like what you said about kind of turbocharging, because I feel like that's definitely what it's done to the conversation around consent in terms of caregivers and the people they're taking care of and conversations around how much is actually kind of ethical to post. Yeah, I think that that's for sure true. And I, I saw this when I was writing the dementia piece, right? So while reporting that, I actually ended up in a couple Facebook groups for caregivers where I was seeing a lot of people venting. Caregiving or being a care partner is really, really stressful. It's also really stressful when you're doing it for somebody who is your family member or somebody you're incredibly close to. The way that people would vent in that group, and I got into this a little bit in the piece, I don't think that there's a version where you could put that on TikTok and see it and not feel horrified by it, right? And so, like, I think the way that TikTok incentivizes putting yourself, putting the people you're talking about on camera and sort of showing this, I think does change how people see each other talking about some of these things in good and bad ways, right? Like, that doesn't mean that there weren't people on TikTok filming people who were having a really hard time and posting it in order to get views out of like shocking content, right? Or doing things that just felt like really undignified for the person who was being filmed, right? Like that, one of the reasons I wrote the piece is because I saw that all the time. And like the few creators who were on TikTok who have dementia face harassment for not acting like 
people think they should act as, and again, this kind of relates to what I wrote for Vox, like as a sick person, like performing the illness in a way that an audience that maybe doesn't have it themselves expects to see it performed, right? And so like the spotlight that it puts on it maybe de-incentivizes some things that somebody might vent in text, but when somebody does like cross that ethical line, it's done away in a way where that person's literally on camera. The offenses feel worse, but it also de-incentivizes sort of casually venting in some ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of going back to your Vox piece, you begin it with Madison Beloy, who posts under the handle at Fruit Snack Maddie, where she has about 300,000 followers. But as you wrote, quote, the real views, the brand deal views came after her stage four cancer diagnosis earlier this year. With 7 million views, her breakout video was a get ready with me for the day she got her head tattoo a depiction of the sun, which we are going to play a little bit of right now. Come with me to get my head tattooed. Plot twist, I have stage four cancer. Whenever I first got diagnosed with cancer back in February, my first thought, okay, well, my first thought was like, fuck, I have stage four cancer. But my second thought was, I'm going to get a sick head tattoo out of this. And today's the day. The tattoo is indeed sick as fuck. It is a sun tattoo. And so before we kind of dissect this video, I wanted to ask, when did you come across Beloy for the first time? And how would you kind of describe her page to someone who's never encountered it before? I think I started seeing her videos this summer. I actually, kind of in a roundabout way, like one would expect that I've been writing about this for a while, so it would have come through like the content I see from illness and disability tech talk spaces, but it was actually through Dungeons and Dragons because she did this video that got kind of popular called Roll for Chemo, which was a parody of another account that does Roll for Sandwich, where he rolls D&D dice to build his sandwich for lunch every day. You know, the video caught my eye, one, because it was good content, but also because this is something I'm interested in as a journalist. Um, So I, I pretty much immediately followed her after that. I would say her account in a lot of ways is like a typical day in the life type account, right? It's a lot of get ready with me's, a lot of videos about different aspects of kind of what she does, um, these sort of like pretty standard formats that would be familiar to anybody who watches TikTok in a lot of genres, I would suspect. But because she has cancer, there is this very visible difference to her content, to some of the things that she is kind of riffing on or the the formats that she's adapting. She has this really kind of optimistic tone, I would say, throughout her videos. Even the ones, you mentioned one in your piece where she kind of breaks down, but she always ends her videos on kind of a light note. And I was wondering if you felt that that was kind of a product of the platform she's posting on, or if you felt through your conversations with her, that's kind of just her disposition. I think it's a bit both and. Like, she's like that when you talk to her, right? Like, sometimes when you interview somebody, their online persona is 
really different from how they just come across in a conversation. She does not. Like, I think two things are simultaneously true. One is that she knows exactly what she's doing on TikTok. She is really good at it and knows how to present herself and knows how to choose what to present herself. But also, it's not very different from just talking to her about things. Like, I think that that mix of, like, humor and honesty and optimism just seem to be her. Your question, though, kind of made me think of some past reporting I've done on influencers in general, where I did this profile years ago about this creator, Elle Mills, who she's no longer really active on YouTube. I think she quit for really good reasons um, for her own health. Um, I profiled her right after she had a, a burnout, like a big public burnout. And I remember sitting with her as she edited a video that she had filmed while I was there with her. And it was of a tough day, right? It was an overwhelming day. She had a meet and greet. She was exhausted, barely verbal at the end of it. The video she edited talked about how much fun she had at that event. And I remember looking at her and she was just kind of like, kind of shrugged and was like, well, that's what people want to see, right? Like they want they want to see that ending. They don't want to see the other version, right, of what happened. And so, like, I do wonder sometimes um, if, like, the format itself demands that there be an ending that kind of looks forward to the future. But also, like, I don't want to impose what I think content should look like on just, like, how somebody is, right? Like, so there's a difference between taking a bad day and pretending it's good and like speaking honestly about how you experience a bad day. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make. So thank you for saying that. We are going to take a short break, but when we come back, I will be with A.W. Oheiser and we will be talking more about illness influencers. And we're back. As part of your reporting for this piece, you spoke to an anthropologist and death educator, which is one of the most incredible job titles I've ever seen. And she told you something that I've kept returning to since I read your piece, which is that, quote, the preeminent narrators of sickness and dying in America tend to be people in institutions that are not ill. And I wanted to first ask if you could explain that a little more. Yeah, I think there's a couple different ways to answer this, right? One is to zoom out a little bit from this reporting. I focus this piece almost exclusively on the narratives of people who have these illnesses who are posting for themselves. That is not necessarily the biggest genre of content about illness on TikTok, right? Like one of the earliest adopters as a community of TikTok were nurses. Like healthcare workers are all over this app, whether you're seeing them or not. My piece might give an impression that is like a little contradictory to that quote, but I think it's like if you're looking through TikTok, you can see how that is true, where the people whose voices have authority on some of these things are not necessarily the patient. I think that that really also, though, it depends on like who you are and who you listen to. Like, I think for somebody who is within the disability community, that's probably not true for them. Like that probably doesn't resonate for them. But for a lot of people, like if they're looking to understand the experience of an illness, they might look to a doctor 
versus somebody who has it. That can get into really tricky territory, right? Because like, I think sometimes those experiences can then be used. Like anecdotes are one of the most powerful vectors for health misinformation. So like, that is not to say that like, one voice always has supremacy over another in these situations. But one of the things that these narratives do is they sort of interject into something that is always discussed highly medicalized, even just with the fact that like, a lot of the people I talk to, like having the illness is not necessarily like the main thing they have going on in their life, right? It's maybe the main thing that attracts people to their content, but it's not like necessarily who they are. Maybe it's part of who they are. Right. And I think that that is like one of the things that is really difficult to get through anything other than these first person experiences. And as you're kind of saying, at first glance, it seems like these influencers really buck that kind of historical trend of the primary vectors of illness information coming from people who aren't actually ill. You wrote, quote, if anything can be content, then maybe turning illness into social media posts flattens it within TikTok's meme culture, rendering it just like anything else. If TikTok's algorithms can create a custom deck of shuffled cards for each user, then sickness content is just one of the suits. But it seems like by the end of your piece, the hope that's kind of expressed there is a little bit neutered. I wanted to talk about that journey from Maybe this will make things a little bit more balanced towards people who are sick and then where you kind of ended up at. I think that this piece is a good example of how a lot of things are both and. So I maintain that sometimes, sometimes these accounts can produce this for the people who are viewing it, right? So like sometimes seeing somebody doing a parody of a popular D&D account on TikTok, but it's about their cancer, can sort of like flatten that experience in a way that produces something really good for how you think about illness, right? Like sometimes that happens. And I think this isn't something that I was like unaware of, but it was something that I really needed to like grapple with and think through as I was reporting this out about like how to put these things in conversation. Whose illness stories get heard? is not sort of magically dissociated from the bigger kind of systemic forces that already govern who gets heard, right? And so like the people who become popular, maybe they look like influencers already. Maybe they have social media skills that translate well to TikTok, right? In a way that somebody who doesn't have those skills wouldn't really be able to connect with people watching on their feed in the same way. This is something that actually I started thinking about when I was um, looking at GoFundMe years ago that, as you probably know, right, like GoFundMe is a huge source of medical fundraising. In order to succeed on something like that, you have to know how the internet works to some degree, which is often a skill that people who are better educated in certain sorts of jobs or in, in certain generations have. And that definitely translates to TikTok. Like the people whose accounts get seen know how to make their accounts get seen. And that indicates that there are other people who don't. Um, sometimes it's down to the disease you have, right? So like cancer is very popular as like a topic to discuss. I think it's also one that feels in a way like is like a palatable disease for people to think about where like people talk about having breast cancer all the time, right? It is something we're used to hearing about. Tanya Sutherland, who I talked to for this piece as well, gave me kind of a counterexample, right? Which is sickle cell anemia. Genetic disease, 
primarily in Black communities. 40 million views on the main hashtag. Breast cancer has 2.9 billion on TikTok. Not all diseases get the same social media attention. And that's like reflected, right, in the same issues that come up again and again in real life, in internet culture, like it's all the same stuff, right? So it's like, when I was writing this, I was trying to show the ways in which this might break through in some ways in how we think about illness, but also it's not like a magical balm for the biases and inequalities that govern so much of what you see and how you consume it and who you trust. Yeah. And I mean, Madison Beloy, I think even says that in your piece where she says something like, I'm a conventionally attractive 20 something white woman. I could have done this even if I didn't have cancer. The cancer is just enough of a variation from what's acceptable that I can still fit within the TikTok algorithm. Yeah. Um, And I think, I can't remember how much of this made it into the piece or not, but like, we also talked a little bit about like, how that factors into like, what's marketable, like, diverse disability beauty, where like, a bald head is something that people who are recruiting uh, influencers for brand deals might find like an acceptable form of beauty, right, to bring in and have on their accounts, that may not be true for other physical differences. It might not be true for people who are older with cancer, right? It may not be true in all these different ways. And so, like, that was sort of, like, another question that, like, came out of my conversation with Madison is, like, what does a marketable sick person look like? What does a marketable sick person act like? And, like, Madison was very upfront that, like, she knew that she was that. Right. Like she knew that she had what was needed to get an audience easily. And not everyone does. And I think like it's important to remember that when you're seeing things online, right? Is that like you're making judgments about like who somebody is and how you should trust them and whether their story is worth it or not based on things that are not just who that person is. It's like what they look like, but also just like their editing skills. Somebody who has editing skills might come across as more valid to you when you're watching stuff than somebody who like doesn't know how to use the app. Like that definitely was something that I was thinking about when I was reporting because I wanted to talk to somebody who had like failed to reach an audience, but then fell into that catch 22 of like, how do you find somebody who's unfindable? And so like, that was actually something that I felt was like kind of missing from the story was somebody who just like really hadn't connected. But also I understood as a reporter why that ended up becoming something that I just didn't find for this one. Yeah, that's such a good way of describing it of how can you find something that's unfindable, you know, it exists. But speaking of feelings, (laughs) I have to admit, I felt a little bit unsettled as I read your piece. And I say this as someone who has chronic illness who has been helped immensely by creators who've shared their experiences with the same illnesses. And you wrote in your piece about the kind of meaningful connections and cancer friends and mutuals that these creators are able to forge in the comment sections of their videos. But as these creators would probably admit themselves, that's not the majority of their viewers. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about those viewers, the ones who aren't sick. There's just something deeply voyeuristic somehow more voyeuristic than normal about the audiences of these seriously sick, sometimes dying people, most of whom presumably aren't seriously sick or dying themselves. And I wanted to ask, what do you think those people get out of these videos? Oh, that is such a huge question that like gets back to like one of the 
central issues of doing internet culture reporting, right? Which is that you never really know what's in someone's heart when you're like (laughs) reading their posts online, right? So like with that huge like pose law caveat, right? In this conversation, it's probably a combination of things, right? I think that voyeurism is definitely part of it. Sometimes there also seems to be like a desire to help um, that like, may or may not be helpful or misguided, right? So like, again, I know I've brought up misinformation a lot. It's because like misinformation is one of my longtime beats. So like, I'm always seeing it. Like one of the comment genres that you'll see on like a wide variety of posts about different sorts of disabilities and illnesses is people claiming that they've got a cure, right? It's like very common on cancer stuff um, where people will say like, oh, well, get this oil or like buy this person's Drink book or turmeric. all this stuff. Yeah. And so like you'll see comments on people's videos about like bad news that they got from their doctors where they're like, oh, well, I knew somebody with a completely different cancer who like, you know, quote, cured it using this like green smoothie method or whatever. And so like, I think that there's different reasons that people are posting on these videos. I do think that a lot of people want to help and want to connect. It's just that maybe they're not thinking through like how to do that, right? Or that the way that they try to do that just simply isn't really meaningful for the lived experience of having it, right? Um. And so, yeah, I think it can be a lot of things. I don't think that everyone who's watching it who doesn't have that disability is necessarily doing it for bad reasons. Uh, I think that's probably a minority. I also think that like one of the things that this piece is about, which is sort of lack of understanding about how to talk about some of this stuff and like be in the space with illness and disability is reflected in the comments of people just like not knowing how to act there. Right. And so like, I think some of it's just that. Yeah, it's kind of giving <laughs> good intentions, <laughs> but also road to hell paved with good intentions. Yeah, like, you know, when I write about bogus cancer cures and all that stuff, like most of the people who are trying these things or sharing this stuff, if they're not like making money off of it, it's just like a normal person who's come across it. They think they're helping. They're not doing it to be a bad person or to hurt people. They're doing it because they think that it's something they can do to help. Right. And so, like, I think that doesn't excuse behavior, but I think when you're trying to like understand something like that, it's always important to keep that in mind. Right. Um, Is that this person thinks they're helping. Mm -hmm. And then my last question that I have is as you mentioned, most of the creators you spoke to have GoFundMe campaigns to help pay for their treatment, which I have to say makes all of this feel a little bit darker, not least because most, if not all of the people you spoke to are American. How do you think this style of content would change if the United States had government-funded healthcare? Do you even think it would still exist? That's a great question. Based on the conversations I have, I do think it would exist. I just think that conversations about money and GoFundMes maybe wouldn't be like something that you expect to find every time. Unless I'm recalling incorrectly, which I don't think I am, none of the people I spoke to said that they got on TikTok to promote their GoFundMe. I'm sure that there are people who have, like I've I've definitely seen accounts where people have created the account with kind of this like emergency urgency of like, please help in this situation or this situation. 
I think that you're getting at something really important, which is the way that the healthcare system works in the US is in the background of every single one of these videos, even just from like the routine discussion of paperwork or like insurance stuff, like all of that is stuff that you simply wouldn't see if the healthcare system were different or better. But I think that like the incentive to share at its best genuinely comes from like wanting to be in community with other people. And like, I would hope that that wouldn't go away because it seems like it's sort of the one kind of bright light about what's going on here is like the genuine connection among everything else. I don't think that every creator would probably need to have a GoFundMe if their healthcare were affordable or paid for. All right, that is the show, my first show back. I want to thank A.W. Olheiser for joining me on today's episode. We will be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. It's the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. It really does help people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter or X or whatever it's called at ICYMI underscore pod. And you can always drop us a note with questions or feedback at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Candice Slim, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online or on a Peloton.